know that we bear a very striking resemblance, but uh, you may have noticed I am not your uh, regularly scheduled Nate Edmondson. Uh, My name is Josh. I am the uh, student pastor here at Highlands, and I know a lot of you may be thinking or you may be uh, have been following along with the Edmondsons, uh, knowing that they have a child on the way. Uh, me being up on stage does not mean the child has come yet, uh, that I know. So I uh, want to make sure I just make that clear. This was something that the Lord had destined for a long time, and also Nate had just let me know a few weeks ago. So uh, you can be praying for them and hoping that the baby is on the way. I know that they are very, very excited, and they are ready for that baby to come. Um, If you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series in Philippians. We've been walking through this book of Philippians, and today we get a chance to wrap it up. Now, this chapter, this specific section of Philippians uh, is interesting because it falls on a very uh, perfect weekend, if you will. Today, Paul is going to talk to us about contentedness. And this wasn't on purpose. Like I said, this is not something that we planned. We weren't like, okay, on Thanksgiving weekend, on Black Friday weekend, the weekend that falls closest to Black Friday, when everyone seems to be the least content, let's plan a contentedness sermon. This is not at all something that was planned, but something that God has naturally placed within our laps. And I think that he has something that is very encouraging and also convicting for us today. Now, when I was prepping and I was getting everything together for this this sermon, I ran across a very interesting article um, that studied something that many of us may uh, resonate with or feel some sort of tension with. And that was, uh, this person had looked at this study of something called uh, the U-shaped graph or chart of happiness. Many of you may have heard of this before. Uh, Essentially, the U-shaped chart of happiness is this idea uh, that, that happiness can be found Uh, or happiness is measured by uh, different ages. And when you are youngest, when you are of youngest age, typically from zero to 20, you are at your happiest. When you hit around 40 to 50 years old, uh, you are at typically uh, your least happiest. And then when you are 50 to beyond, uh, you are at your most happiest again. Uh, Essentially, it's literally a perfect U-shaped. And uh, this phenomena, if you will, is something called a midlife crisis. Uh, This is something that many of you uh, may feel and know. You may be 25 years old in this room and you may feel or know this tension. You may be 45 and you feel and know this tension. Uh, But the author really wanted to study and know, like, why do we have this? Like, what is this, uh, this phenomenon? What is this crisis that we feel? Why is it that by the time people typically, and you can poke holes in this graph and, and really kind of look at why did people say the answers that they said and all that kind of stuff, but why is it that typically by the time people get to their midlife, uh, they typically become discontent? And he, as he was kind of forming his arguments, he was just kind of subjectively talking to some of his friends and interviewing them for this particular study, and he found something very, very interesting when he was talking to a friend who he labels S. This is what he says. I'm just going to read it. His friend said, I think it must be something internal. His friend was 45 years old. His friend says that he described his 20s as exciting and fun. He was really, really dumb, but he thought he knew a lot. Uh, His 30s were a time of hard work, but steady rewards. He felt like everything was on track. Everything looked like white picket fences and the American dream. But then 
He said he was bushwhacked in his 40s by an unexpected divorce, unmarried fatherhood, a heart attack. He said he now experiences difficult feelings of contentment, leading to the same self-doubt that everyone feels, a creeping suspicion that he is fated to be whiny. He also wondered whether his dissatisfaction has been some cause of his problems, not just in effect. He said, professionally, things look good. Maybe something was going on, something, significant, uh, something sufficient for my wife to leave. If I did a deep psychological dive, I might say that nothing will ever make me content. Maybe there is something deeply psychologically wrong with me. I see life as a challenge to overcome rather than an adventure to be enjoyed. I thought of running away to Brazil, changing my name and becoming a hotel clerk, but maybe, just maybe, all of this will change when I'm in my 50s. I would argue culturally, maybe this is even outside of the West, but culturally, we have a contentedness problem disguised as a happiness problem. Many of us feel a certain level of dissatisfaction with our life, a level of unhappiness in our life. And what this author kind of began to parse out, if you will, is that many of us have these well-being contingencies in our life that set us up to ultimately feel like our life is either a failure or a success based upon those contingencies. Essentially what they found was uh, if, uh, if our life turns out this way or if, or if I have X by the time I die or if I don't have this by the time I pass, then my life is a failure. For example, if I don't get married by a certain age, then my life is a failure. If, if I don't have the perfect family or my own biological kids, then my life is a failure. If I don't get that next position or opportunity at work, then I can't be truly satisfied. If I don't get to retire in the place that I want to, then I can't truly have satisfaction. If we don't get the house that we want, the person that we wanna marry, all the things that we want in life, then I can't truly be satisfied. We build our lives on these well-being contingencies. And the issue is, when they don't turn out the way that we want them to turn out, we feel stressed, we feel anxious, we have all of this kind of pent up energy within us that just is so frustrated and tense. And then we take that out on other people and we can be, even begin to doubt our relationship with the Lord because we feel like he couldn't really truly love us because he, he would want these things to turn out for us or he would want these things to happen in our life. And so all of these well-being contingencies make up our life to try to, to try to make us feel happy and good. And my question for us today would be what if our life wasn't built upon well-being contingencies? What if our life wasn't built upon all of these things having to, to be put in place? But what if instead we had an inner peace that was within us, a contentedness that no matter what comes, no matter how life turns out, we are stable, we are secure, we know that we are loved and cared for by Christ himself. And I think that's what Paul is gonna be getting at today. 
He wants the church of Philippi and he wants us to know today that we can be content in who Christ is and what he accomplished despite anything and everything that happens in our life, whether good or bad. If you've been following along with us, you know that Paul, a little context for this text, you know that Paul has been in jail. Most likely, like he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's now put in jail, he's, uh, he's writing this letter to a group of people, and specifically today, you'll have noticed when the, the word was read, he's received a gift from them. He's received a gift from uh, the church of Philippi, specifically, specifically through this person named uh, Epaphroditus. And he sees this gift as something very caring and kind and loving. Like he loves this gift. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. He says in verse 15, and you Philippians know in the early days of the gospel, he's referencing back to Acts chapter 16, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. And in verse, um, at, towards the end there, he says uh, that this gift is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's referencing Old Testament sacrifices. He's referencing the fact that they, the, the people of Israel would lay down a sacrifice before the Lord. And that gift, that sacrifice was something that was pleasing and acceptable to him. And he is comparing the gift that they have given them, given him to that Old Testament sacrifice. But it's interesting Paul keeps pointing back to this gift and kind of treating it really, really weird. Like if you read this text, if you have it in front of you and you're just kind of like looking through it, this is one of the most awkward thank yous in all of the Bible. Like it's so strange. He says in this, as he's looking at the gift, he says, not that I seek this gift and most likely this gift was some sort of financial support that they are giving him. So he says, not that I seek this gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing into your account. He's essentially saying, thank you for the gift, but no thank you. I would rather you experience uh, sufficiency and growing in thankfulness than me receiving this gift. It'd be like uh, you giving presents to your kids at Christmas time. And they've been wanting these gifts for a really long time and Christmas morning finally comes and they run down to the, the, the tree and there's presents down there and they turn around and they say, mom, dad, thank you for the gifts, but I don't actually really want this. In fact, the thankfulness of you being able to give rather than receive is far better than these gifts. Like that's pretty much what Paul is doing here. He's in jail, he's just received financial support, they've been supporting him for a long period of time, and he's like, I, I, there's something bigger here happening than me receiving the gift. He doesn't want us to focus on the gift, he wants us to focus on the Lord. And so I think the, the main idea that Paul would, would want us to understand today, and he's trying to get the church of Philippi to understand as well, is that Christian contentment is being satisfied in Jesus despite our circumstance. Christian contentment is being satisfied in Jesus despite our circumstance. Discontentment is something that has been around since the very beginning of time. If you look all the way back to just, if you took your Bible and you went back to Genesis chapter one through three, God creates the world, he forms it, puts it into perfection, everything is good, and yet Adam and Eve are so discontented in perfection that they decide to go and disobey the Lord and disobey the one thing that he wants them to do, 
and go after eating the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and completely walk away from it. Discontentment is something that is within us. It's the root of everything that we have, every single sin that we have in our life. Like if you think about it, complaining and bitterness ultimately are, are, are rooted in a discontentment that we don't have enough that we need more, that other people have more than us and so we need to be angry at them or we need to be envious of them. Escapism through drugs and alcohol or whatever we use to be able to escape life is ultimately rooted in a discontentment that we don't feel like life is treating us fairly or that we are experiencing life in the fullest. Uncontrolled spending, that is rooted in a discontentment that, that we just need more, that materials can, can fulfill us, that ultimately we can be fulfilled through uh, the possessions that we can mound up in life. Infidelity is ultimately rooted in a discontentment that our spouse or intimacy is not enough and that another relationship could somehow fulfill us. Discontentment is the root of sin. It's a heart that doesn't trust the things of God and that he has given us enough. And with that, the other problem with discontentment is that you can never really tell who's discontent and who's not. See, discontentment can be just absolutely destroying us on the inside. That root of discontentment can just be flaring up like crazy within us. Yet on the outside, we can be sitting in this room. We could be on staff here at church. We could be leading a Bible study. We could look like we could have, uh, we could be Jeff Bezos and have all the money in the world, yet we have a wild discontentment heart that wants other things than the Lord. Discontentment is a root that bears itself out through the symptoms of our actions and sin. So what does Paul want us to know about discontentment? What does he say here in this text specifically that's important for us to know so that we can begin to realize and recognize it in our own life and we can begin to shape ourselves to become more like Jesus, to be truly content in who he is and what he accomplished. The first thing that I notice in this text, there's a lot about contentment here, but the first thing that I notice in this text is that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Look at verse 11. Paul says, for I have learned to be content. There is a education process. There is a learning process to being content. I would illustrate it this way, that, that contentment is like a classroom. Contentment is like a classroom. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I hated classrooms. Like when I think about classrooms, I think of it like jail. It was just terrible. I was always that kid, uh, and this will surprise those who are closest to me, I was always that kid that got sent to the principal's office for talking. Uh, my parents would constantly get calls uh, because the principal was always like, hey, Josh is causing disturbance in the class and talking too much when he shouldn't be talking. Um, and I was always just like, I hated having to sit and try to listen and learn. In high school, if my parents are watching, they're gonna be mortified by this, but in high school, um, I would play pranks on my teacher. I would, um, when, like me and my friends would get together and we would sit 
uh, in our, our chairs, like in our desks, and every single time the teacher would turn around, we would scoot our desk a little bit closer uh, to the teacher until eventually we were right up next to him. Um, and any students or kids listening, don't do that. It's, it's not worth it. I promise you it's not worth it. Uh, but, but classrooms to me uh, were something that uh, just were, I don't know, I just didn't enjoy them. There was not uh, something that, that was beautiful or joyful to me. Typically, um, we don't enjoy them because it's taking us through a process of education, right? It's, it's, it's growing us into something, and that growth is typically something that's difficult, that requires us to be intentional, to be focused, to see and to learn and to, to, to take a subject that we don't really understand and then become more like it or to take something we don't understand and to know more about it. And that's what Paul is saying about contentment that we don't just wake up and then we're like, all right, I'm content. Or we don't walk away from a sermon like this and then say, all right, I have earned and I have learned contentment. Contentment is a process. It's something that we go through. It's a, it's a learning experience. And Paul is going to say here that the teacher isn't us. We're not the ones that are teaching ourselves contentment or we're not reading books and we're like, okay, now I know and I understand and learn contentment. Paul is going to say that life's circumstances are the teachers of contentment. And as I was getting this sermon together, at first I thought, well, yeah, the bad circumstances in life teach me about contentment. Like when bad things come, ultimately that teaches me about who I am in Jesus and how to be more content when I have things that happen to me. But I don't think that's necessarily the whole of what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about that. He absolutely is. But notice what he says. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. He's saying that both the good and the bad circumstances in life teach us to be content. He's saying that the, the, the terrible diagnosis that we get, that really bad diagnosis that just punches us in the gut and completely shapes and changes our entire life, that teaches us about contentment, but also the good diagnosis that shares with us joy and meaning and purpose and hope and, and the fact that we're gonna be freed from something gives us a teaching on contentment. Uh, divorce that breaks our heart from a, us personally or a loved one that is going through it, teaches us about contentment, but also so does a new marriage and the joy that that brings and experiencing the happiness of someone becoming married. Um, the death of a loved one gone too soon teaches us about contentment. And so does the birth of a baby and new life. Failure to succeed along your peers in your job teaches you about contentment, but so does success in that job. When everything's going really, really well and you just continually experience praise from your boss and you're succeeding at everything you do, that also teaches us about contentment. God uses all things to help us learn what it means to truly be content. And we need to watch for those things. We need to be mindful about both the good and the bad and how God uses that to teach us about contentment. Now, here's the key. When we're looking at this and we're seeing that God is going to use circumstances uh, to teach us, God is not allowing 
both blessings and suffering in our life to enter into our life so that he can see if we are content in him. Like he's not giving you things or allowing things to happen or um, stuff's popping up in your life to teach you more about contentment so that he can see like, okay, is uh, Susie really that content in me? Or is Jeff really that content in me? He knows. God sovereignly understands and knows your level of contentedness with him. He knows where you're at in his or your relationship with him. What he wants you to see is if you are content in him. He allows both blessings and suffering to teach us, to allow us to see, are we truly content in who Christ is and what he has given us? And so we need to be watchful. We need to be mindful. And I think that he wants us to ask this question whenever good things and bad things come. And the question is, am I satisfied in Jesus alone? Am I satisfied in Christ alone? For those of you that have good things that have come, and I know it's not this dichotomous, but um, we'll play around with this for a second. Uh, for those of you that have had good things come, a lot of like amazing things, like uh, if you've had a lot of success or achievement, are you more satisfied in that success or achievement than you are your relationship with Jesus? Maybe uh, you have now gotten into a new relationship and you've been waiting for a relationship really, really like for a long time. This, this has been a person that you've been um, kind of seeking after and the Lord has finally allowed you to date that person or be married to that person. Are you looking for the affirmation and love of that person more than you are the affirmation and love of God? Maybe uh, there's uh, material possessions that you have. The Lord has blessed you with the ability to have many material possessions and great things, a new home, whatever it could be. Um, and those are great things. Those are really, really good things. But are you resting your life and your purpose in those material possessions over who God is and what he has accomplished on the cross? Good things are good things. And I'm not saying that you should be like, well, I wanna give this up and I don't really wanna have good things because God just really wants me to be sad. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that good things, blessings that fill our life can be a good way for us to be able to seek and see, am I satisfied in the good things and the blessing or am I satisfied in the giver of those good things and the blesser? For those of you that have had bad things that have happened in your life, God is using, uh, maybe this is a season and a time right now where you're going through something really, really hard, something extremely difficult that has just been super hard in your life and your family and the, a few questions that we would ask ourselves in that as well. Um, am I satisfied in Jesus so much that even if I were to be physically changed, even if I were to get that bad diagnosis, even if I were to have things happen in my life, am I so satisfied in him that I trust that he is going to use this to be able to help my family, to help me, to grow me into who he is? that the discomfort is worth it? Am I so satisfied in the Lord that even though I'm going through a difficult relationship, a divorce, a heartache, a breakup, a failure, that I am willing to place my entire trust in him and know that he is going to care for me and that he is a greater relationship for me and his love matters more to me than that person? Would I love and trust him still? 
if life isn't turning out in the way that I want it to? Am I satisfied if my plans were set up to be perfect for the next five years and he's completely changed them? Am I still satisfied even if he has changed my plans? And I wanna provide a disclaimer because I think that it's really, really important to know, like what you're going through, if it's something really, really hard, that's legitimate. The pain that you may be feeling, the suffering that you're going through, all the things that you're experiencing, it's not just, all right, well, be content through it. It doesn't mean it's not hard. Or, well, you know, like anytime someone's gone through something difficult and someone's been like, hey, um, you know, God's really teaching you through something, you know, teaching you uh, something through this. Every single time someone's going through something difficult like that, they may not do it, but they wanna just smack that person because it's like, yeah, I know it, but it's still hard. And so I know that if you're going through something difficult in this moment, if there's something going on in your life, I wanna make sure that, that you know that it is very legitimate. It is difficult and it is weighty. But my encouragement for you today is that God is here to give you purpose in the pain. That God can use even the worst of circumstances to teach you more about his character and grow you to become more like him. A guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon said that pain was the greatest university that, uh, that Christians could know. God uses both the good and the bad to be able to grow us to be able to become more like him, to become content in who he is, and the way we react to both the highs and the lows of life. Teach us about how we are and who we are um, content in Jesus. The second thing that we learn about contentment here is that contentment is rare. Contentment is rare. Look at verse 12. Paul says, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, this may be a little confusing because uh, it sounds very similar to what we just read about contentment being learned. Uh, however, that statement that Paul is using, I have learned the secret, is actually a different word in the original Greek than the, the word learned that we just read not too long ago. This word that Paul is using here is something uh, that, that would mean that you are getting into something that is ordinarily hidden. You're getting into something that is ordinarily hidden. That when we have learned the secret, we are getting into something that is not normally seen by the outside world or someone that wouldn't be looking for it. It's hidden. Paul's saying that contentment is like a rare jewel. It's something that you have to really find, seek after. You have to get a map out and you gotta go find, you gotta look for it. Contentment is not just true contentment, is not just outside in the world open for us to grab. It is something that we have to seek after and look for. Uh, there was a study that was done a little over a year ago by, the guy, uh, by the, a guy by the name of Daniel Cordero, and he wrote an article um, on this five-year-long study that he did with a group of researchers. Um, his team set to uh, find, their plan was to find uh, and identify the human emotions that are universal across cultures and see if they could be recognized with people who had no experience with the outside world at all. So they wanted to go to groups of people, see if they would recognize different human emotions. They, they went to people that had no cell phone, no internet. They like were out in the middle of nowhere. 
And one particular part of the study, they decided to hike to a group of nomads in the Himalayas of Eastern Bhutan. So I have no idea where that's at, but uh, it sounds very remote. Uh, so they decide to go to this place and they hike all the way up there. They traverse all this uh, terrible terrain and they get up there and they begin to study the different emotions and they made it to this settlement of about 200 families. And here's what they found. Here's what he said. He said, incredibly, when we showed the villagers dozens of facial and vocal expressions, they recognized the vast majority of, of the emotions with relatively high accuracy. But there was one emotion that didn't behave like all the others. It was different. The emotion was contentment. And while we were working on translating our, our study, our guide, Dr., I can't pronounce his name, but Dorji Wangchuk, stopped for a moment when we reached this word. He said, in our culture, this emotion is very special. It's the highest achievement of human well-being, and it is the greatest enlightened masters that have uh, been writing about it for thousands of years. Daniel Cordero then said this, no matter where I went on planet Earth, all of the cultures I interacted with, all of these different cultures that were kind of isolated, revered contentment as one of the highest states to cultivate in life. Yet in the West, in the United States, it was hardly recognized. And that's what Paul's getting at. The contentment is rare. It's like something that we don't really ever recognize or see in our world. It's something that even when we stumble across someone in these spaces, in church or at our work, when someone's like it, it's like they're an alien. It's like, whoa, you're okay with not having the next new thing? You're okay with uh, where you're at in life? You're okay that if you didn't receive this or get this, you're okay? Paul is saying that it is rare. It is like a secret. It is something to be found. Essentially, con contentment cannot be purchased or earned. It's found and given. It's something that we cannot purchase or earn. It's found and given. And Paul knows this as he's even writing up this sermon. That this was something that the church of Philippi also struggled with as well. In fact, the word contentment that he uses here is actually a different word than we would actually think in the way that we would kind of uh, describe it. The word contentment he is using here is one for self-sufficiency. And his readers at that time would understand and know what that word meant. See, there was a bunch of these Greek Stoic philosophers that believed in self-sufficiency. They believed that if we just did enough, if we just earned enough, um, if I were the, the best person, the most noblest person, if I just really set my mind to it, then I can be this way. And Paul has decided to essentially say, no, you may think that you can be self-sufficient enough to be able to achieve contentedness. Contentedness is found through Christ, not in yourself. And this flies against the face of even our culture today. Like if you spent just five minutes, maybe not even that much, and you got your phone out, and you're scrolling through your phone, maybe you're already there, and you're scrolling through your phone, and uh, you just look at your, your feeds, your Instagram feed, uh, your TikTok feed, if you're really hip, and uh, your Facebook feed, whatever it may be and you're going through all the, the, your feeds, like within just seconds, within minutes, all you would hear are like little whispers of discontentment. Like, what if you looked like this? What if your family looked like this? What if you had this? What if you were able to achieve this? What if you got this? 
Our culture is just rooted in this discontentment to the point where we can't even really see it in our world. That it's like buried real deep. That it's like a secret. It is like a rare hidden gem when we actually run across it. And I think even if we were to ask ourselves, like if you were to to have someone walk up to you randomly and be like, hey, are you content? It'd be a really weird question first off, but if you were to just ask someone were to walk up to you and be like, hey, are you content? I think even in the way that we would answer that question, it would show our heart about what we think about contentment. We'd most likely begin to look at external things. We'd say, well, my wife's good, Um, we have a good dog, and we have a great house. Um, My job's going well, Um, I'm doing well there, everything's been going really good, so yeah, I'm content. Or, um, you know, I have a great retirement, everything's set up really well, I live in a great place, so yeah, I'm content. And Paul is trying to stress to the church of Philippi and to us, like, yeah, those things are great, but we can't measure our level of contentedness by the external things that we have in life. Contentedness is measured by Jesus himself. If we are rooted and satisfied in him, if we care more about him than we do the things of this earth. And that's the secret. When Paul says, hey, I have this secret of contentedness, that's the secret. That Christian contentment is found only in Jesus. Christian contentment is only found in Christ himself. Paul reiterates this fact in uh, verse 13. He says, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, some of you may see this text, uh, this verse, and you know it very well. You may not even, this may be your first time in church, and you see verse 13, and you're like, I know that text. This is something that athletes most popularly uh, use very frequently. Um, This is something that you'll see on a lot of social media posts when people really want to garner up a bunch of motivation. Uh, It may be on a poster in your home gym or uh, written somewhere for you to be motivated and feel good about yourself. And typically what we see with this verse is that it's taken completely out of context in the way that um, people believe that it's kind of like uh, this lucky rabbit's foot. Like if we carry this into battle, we're gonna be able to win the big game. If uh, Jesus is for me, I can do everything that, that I wanna be able to accomplish. I can, uh, though I haven't worked out at all, I can go and I can climb, climb Mount Rainier uh, because Christ does all things through him who strengthens me, right? Like he's gonna be able to garner up enough support and strength so that I can go do that. He can allow miracles to happen, like the Cougars beating the Huskies yesterday. Um, he can uh, strengthen me to... Um, I'm not like a really big Husky fan, but I just thought this one. Um, he, can, he can give me all the strength that I need to be able to go and accomplish the biggest things in life. And that's not necessarily what Paul's trying to say. Paul is saying that in Christ, I am able to undergo both the good things and the bad things. Like when he says all things, I can accomplish all things through Christ who strengthens me, that all things is the good and the bad. It's the uh, in want. It's the, uh, when he talks about being well-fed and hungry, abundant or in need. Paul is saying that I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I can achieve all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's important for us to understand and to know that, that our contentment is found in Christ alone. Now, I don't wanna throw out the baby with the bathwater, and, um, and I think that's the saying. I, I, I don't wanna just completely get rid of this text and then say, well, verse 13 is so taken out of context, so then therefore, it doesn't matter at all whatsoever. Because there is a beautiful truth that's happening here. That Christ does, in both the good and the bad, strengthen us to be content in life. That no matter what may come, he gives us the ability to be content in him. Paul would even go further and say in verse 18 that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is a profoundly wonderful statement that God will supply all our needs according to his riches. And those riches are infinite. Like if you were to uh, be out to dinner, maybe you go out to lunch right after this and you saw Bill Gates and he walked up to you and said, hey, um, I wanna give you a blank check and you can write whatever you want. You'd be like super happy, right? You'd be like, man, this is insane. I'm gonna pay off all my student loans if, it, if he has enough money. Um, or I'm going to um, pay off my house or whatever it is. Um, I'm, I'm going to use this to be able to do what I want. And that would be awesome. Here's the thing about Bill Gates' uh, bank account. Though he has a lot, it's still limited, probably technically. It's still limited. That would be according to his riches. Paul is saying that we get to receive according to God's riches, and that is infinite that what Bill Gates could even supply for us is just minuscule in comparison to the grace, love, and mercy that God has for you. Now, our needs may look completely different to us compared to the Lord. Our needs may look vastly different than what God actually will supply us with. So we may still be surprised. We may think that we, our needs are a new car or a new home or whatever it may be, and God completely supplies us in a different way. And we need to be ready for that. But God has given you the grace to be able to be content in whatever circumstance, to be able to be loved and known by him. Another way to say it is that God always provides everything that you need that he has called you to. Whatever you're going through in life, it may still be difficult, hard, may still be something that's really, really just tearing you down but God has given you the grace to be able to pick yourself back up again and walk forward in him. So what do we do with this? As we're kind of wrapping up, what do we what do, we do with this text? I think the, what, what Paul would want us to, to get from this text, to apply to our life as we go throughout this week, is that we need to make Jesus the thing, not just a thing. We need to make Jesus the thing, not just a thing. A lot of times in our life, we can, uh, we can look at kind of Jesus as, or a relationship with Jesus as a house. So you're gonna have to follow with me on this, but uh, we can think of Jesus um, like, like we're the house and we have all these different rooms. And each room is like our marriage, our kids, uh, it could be our job, and each room kind of has a different space. And we kind of make Jesus another room. Like he's just kind of intermixed within it all. And Paul is saying, no, 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 Jesus is not just a room. Jesus is the house. Jesus should be the house. That God has come to give you new life, 
He has entered into our experience. He has lived a life that we could never live, died the death that we deserved, was raised to life, placed his identity upon you so that he could be everything to you in life. Not just a part, but everything to you in life. And when we make Jesus everything, not just a thing, that changes the way that we interact with the good and the bad in our life. It means that if we lose everything, we still have the thing. It doesn't matter what else has come. We still have Christ. We still have who he is, what he accomplished. It doesn't matter what other people think of us. It doesn't matter what other people say about us. We still have Christ. We need to make Jesus not just a thing, but the thing. And I think um, what I would like for us to do this week is to ask ourselves this question. How much of my time is spent on the things of God? I want you to compare that to other things that pop up in your life. How much of my time is spent on things of God? And if I were to actually take inventory of that, I think we would probably see, I know for myself I would see this, that most of my time is spent on other things than the Lord. And that's natural. It's not like I'm saying you should become a monk or something and just you know, move away and, just, and, and only focus on these things. I'm saying... How much of God is weaved into your everyday life? How much is spent thinking about him? How much is thinking on entertainment? How much is thinking about your job? How much is focusing on whatever it could be? How much of God is your life interwoven with? And when God becomes the thing in our life, I believe that we will see that we are truly content because our heart is placed in who he is. As we wrap, um, Paul says at the very end of this text in verse 20, he says, um, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. And we see that this is a very typical way that, uh, that Paul will end a lot of his letters, and so this is not uncommon. But I think that Paul is also trying to tie in something here because he also has some notes right after that. Um, something about the fact that when we are content in Jesus, there's a certain amount of glory that is ascribed to Christ that other people see and know, that when we are deeply rooted and satisfied in who Jesus is, God actually receives a great amount of glory in our life. John Piper, a very famous preacher, said it this way, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If we wanna be a people that are glorifying the Lord in our world, in our workplace, in our friend groups and family, if we wanna be a people that are glorifying the Lord, The greatest way that we could do that is by being content and fully satisfied in who he is and what he accomplished. True contentment is found when despite the circumstance, we are still content in who Christ is. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the reminder that this text brings and the fact that no matter what may come, No matter the good, the bad, you are still there for us. That no matter what anybody thinks about us or says, that we can rest our hope in who you are and what you accomplish on the cross. I pray that you help us not to make you just a thing in our life, but help us to make you the thing in our life. Help us to love you more than everything else in this entire world. And may we be truly content in who you are. In your name we pray.